This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Codley Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid. Conversations about curiosity, discovery, and innovation. Welcome to a preview of this coming season's shows on Science Clear and Vivid. This season, which starts next week, will be special in that all the scientists we'll be talking to are women. They're a diverse group, and they're doing amazing work, opening our eyes to aspects of nature that are unexpected and exciting. Like Baronda Montgomery. I never thought I'd get so excited about plants. Yes, Baronda Montgomery is a professor at Michigan State, um, and she's got a wonderful new book out called Lessons from Plants. So the essence of a book is that plants are all about unexpectedly connecting and communicating, which is, of course, the theme of our shows. I know. I, I, that so surprised me that we have conversations that aren't always directly about communication, but they often almost always involve some kind of communication among humans. And now, shockingly, we're talking about communication among plants. That's right. And Veranda gives you a few examples of how plants signal each other with chemicals and even exchange sucrose through their roots. A nurse plant, if it's got excess sucrose, gives it to other plants, which is just amazing. Uh, and at this point, you were just completely blown away. I'm smiling throughout this whole conversation because it's so amazing. It is. And, and what, about, what about information about light? How, yes. how, why, why would one plant need to give that to another? So this is quite fascinating. This is actually part of what we study in my lab. We study in my lab the, the actual proteins that are involved in allowing plants to know when light is available. So plants are very good at knowing what light is available, whether there's bright light or dim light, but they're also able to detect different colors of the rainbow. So if there's a lot of red light, um, that means that you're in full sunlight. And if not, you're in a dim condition. And what we understand is that plants are able to communicate, particularly to other kin plants, through this looking at the light spectrum. And so there's something that's commonly known in forests that um, you have these canopy gaps. If you look at a forest from above, you can see that there are gaps between the trees. Uh -huh. And people used to think that that was just physical abrasion, where the trees wouldn't touch branches and that they would break off. But that's actually plants communicating what light is available and not growing too close to another plant that's related to them so that they don't compete for light. My mouth is hanging open. I'm stunned to hear this. Yes, yes. I, I, this, this is amazing to me. Yes. The plant, they don't crowd each other out. Exactly. Because if we're related and either of us survives, that's good enough. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to compete with your direct relatives. In that kind of a forest, I understand that they're all connected very much underground as well. That's right. Yes. Yes. And in fact, there's that wonderful phrase, the wood wide web. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of great work by uh, Susan Simard and other scientists who have really studied that wood wide web where it looks like the great majority of plants in a forest are actually connected underground. And so there's so much communication that's happening between them. And I think too frequently we think of plants as these lone beings. I don't know why we're not, but we think of plants as kind of existing <laughs> on their own. And they're actually in these very 
physically connected, but also chemically connected networks that's really determining how, how well they do in those environments. In her book, Baronda talks about applying lessons she's learned from how plants connect and communicate to how we humans connect and communicate. Here's one of my favorite lessons from plants. I think one of the ones that's been really powerful for me is uh, what I think about as the abilities plants have to ask for help um, when they're in distress. And too frequently as humans, we will suffer in distress without asking for help. And I think of the ability when plants are attacked by an insect and they produce a chemical that helps their neighbor that they're offering help to their neighbor to prepare. But there's also this fascinating tripartite interaction that happens in nature where some plants that are being attacked by mites, little insects, Mm -hmm. they can't protect themselves against that, but the plants can produce a chemical that attracts a wasp which eats the mites. Mm -hmm. And so producing this chemical is saying, I need help. And that attracts this parasitic wasp that comes in and has a picnic on the mites. And so the plants are protected. And that's just a fascinating biological phenomenon, I think. But also for me, it's a powerful lesson about the importance of asking for help when you need it. And I think as humans, we have so much to learn about having the vulnerability and the humility to ask for help when we're in a situation that we can't handle. But if we could speak out the language, there may be someone who could come in and take care of that situation. From Lessons from Plants, your next guest is uh, looking to learn lessons from colliding black holes in outer space, sending out gravity waves. Yeah, we're talking with Maya Fischbach next about LIGO that's been exploring gravitational waves. What was so fascinating to me when this started to come into the news was this realization that when something big and violent happens in the universe, like when two gigantic black holes collide, Gravity waves are sent out throughout the universe, like ripples in a pond when we toss in a rock. Only these are ripples in space, space-time. And when these ripples pass through objects like planets or, or you and me, we wiggle a little and we get very slightly longer and shorter for a very brief moment. That was the theory until 2015, when a huge observatory actually detected these waves for the first time. And that changed our view of the universe, and it changed the life of a young scientist. Here's Maya Fischbach. So I've been working on LIGO since I started my PhD in 2015, which was a very lucky time to be entering this field because I started my PhD the very same month that the first gravitational wave event was detected by LIGO. Um, so it was it was a very fortunate time. I've kind of grown as a scientist at the same time that the entire field is growing. Is that what helped push you into this field of working on gravitational waves and working on black holes colliding and that kind of thing? Was it that you were, here you were just entering the world of science as a qualified person, and this incredible thing was happening in science at the same time. Even though I didn't know until the public announcement in 2016 that LIGO had actually detected gravitational waves, I think I could definitely sense the excitement whenever I talked to people who did gravitational waves. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a really great time to be studying this. This is amazing. 
This wiggle we do when a gravity wave passes through us is very, very tiny, right? We, we don't really notice it. Fortunately. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but their instruments are so sensitive, they do notice it. That's right. There are actually three LIGO detectors currently at work, uh, two here in the States and one in Italy. And I think another one's being built or may have already been built in Japan. Uh, I went to actually film at the one in Hanford, Washington, several years ago before it came online. And it was the most amazing sight that it has these two long tubes. And when I say long, they're two and a half miles long, vacuum tubes at right angles stretching out over the prairie. And a, a laser beam shot down each of them and measures the difference in length of each one as a gravity wave sweeps past. And that change is, <laughs> when I say minute, it's minute. Our detectors are arguably the most sensitive instruments ever built. The change in distance that they're sensitive to is like the width of a human hair compared to the distance between us and our the next closest star other than our sun. So like four light years away. So it's extremely tiny, almost unimaginably tiny changes in distances that we're observing. Well, that's, that's really amazing. So it, I get the impression that in all of science, whenever a door is opened, when you walk through the door, you see another hundred locked doors that you have to figure out what's, you know, what's behind them. Are there questions that have been raised in your mind by, by the, the data you've collected, the things you've discovered with, through LIGO? Uh, what, what puzzles are you looking forward to solving? Yeah, um, there are just so many open questions right now. So, right, for for decades, we were just trying to detect gravitational waves. And I think the mentality was just like, okay, we'll detect them and then we'll be done. Like all our work will be justified. But of course, that's like the first, right, people often make this analogy of like, we're really turning a telescope to the sky for the first time. There's this whole universe that we haven't been able to observe before. We had no idea that black holes merged. It's like detecting galaxies for the first time, uh, right? For most of human history, we had no idea that there were galaxies outside our Milky Way. And so I think this is really as big a transformation that's happening right now with gravitational waves is, okay, we now know that there are black holes that merge out there. We know that there are neutron stars that merge, but we don't really know much more than that. So um, I think I really want to figure out where do these black holes come from? How does the universe actually make the black holes that we're seeing and how does it get them to merge? That's still an open problem. And maybe there are many different ways. Uh, nature is often creative. So many, maybe there are multiple things going on and kind of figuring out how the universe makes black holes. And then however, I'm still kind of wary saying this because every observing run we've had so far, we've detected so many more black holes and they weren't anything we were expecting before. 
Um, so I actually don't know. We just finished our third observing run recently, and I don't know when the detectors turn on again. Um, we're going to see something that I think will completely shock us and will come with a whole new set of questions that I'm not creative enough to even think of right now. From that one case of two black holes merging that coincided with the start of Maya Fishback's career as a gravity wave specialist, they've now detected over 50. And in fact, Maya was one of the organizing authors of a paper that was published recently that set out all the details of those 50 collisions. Um, and it was a paper with an astonishing over 1,300 authors. And she and her colleagues are now beginning to analyze the data from the third run of the LIGO experiment. And she expects to find a lot more colliding black holes in the data there. Meanwhile, we return to Earth with a woman who calls herself a large carnivore ecologist. Not because she's large, but because the carnivores she studies are. Large, like one of her favorites, black bears, especially female black bears. Here's Ray Wynn Grant. You know, I like to say these days that female bears are just superstars, like the superheroes of the animal world. They go into, high, you know, their winter dens pregnant, you know, with maybe two or three cubs. And then in January, they give birth. And we have this joke in the ecology community that every bear that's ever, you know, been born ever for the history of time in North America, was born in January. That's just <laughs> when it happens. And I think that's so funny. So in January, they give birth to these little tiny cubs. I mean, the, in, compared to the size of a big, big adult bear, the cubs are about one pound. Wow. And I mean, that's pretty significant. If you think about it, you know, I, I'm a mom. I'm, you know, five foot three. And so I'm a kind of small person. And I've given birth to, you know, two seven-pound babies. And bears are much bigger than me. They give birth to these one-pound, little hairless, you know, blind cubs during hibernation. Now, they're not completely asleep. These mama bears aren't, you know, snoozing through the, you know, labor and delivery. But they are in their, like, resting state where their metabolism has slowed down, you know, all of that. They give birth. It's not very painful. And these little cubs just start nursing from their mother and they just do nothing but nurse from her while she, you know, kind of lays around in the den for months and months and months. Huh. You know, it could be up, up to six months even. Wow. And then once the timing is right, once it's springtime, once, you know, those environmental cues indicate to the mother that it's time to leave the den, she'll bring her new little litter out to see the light of day for the first time. And that's when their lives really begin. Ray's research is sponsored by the National Geographic Society, and she's just taken up a new position in California, where she's had the opportunity to explore the ecology of a new conservation area, which lies along the coast, just, uh, just outside uh, Santa Barbara. You're doing a new study now that you've just begun. I think yesterday was your first chance to explore <laughs> the environment. Yes. And what struck me when I heard about it was that you're finding... I think bears and and maybe mountain lions in a in an un, unusual place to find them down by the beach is that right 
Yeah, it's absolutely right. It's really, you know, after all my years of studying bears in the American West, I never thought I would go so far west that I was actually on the coast. <laughs> and yet that's where I'm finding myself. And and you're right, Alan, yesterday, you know, because of COVID, a lot of my work has been on pause. Um, but, you know, COVID restrictions are easing up. And so yesterday was my first day at my brand new field site. And it is this coastal area, this coastal part of California. And quite literally, you know, as I was walking around, just getting a sense for the area, I found uh, black bear tracks on mm. the beach, mm. you know, just just fresh from that day on the beach, on the sand. Now, what are they doing at the beach, do you suppose? You know, that's that's my job. My job is to answer that question and figure it out. But I have a few guesses. So without any actual proof, I have some guesses. It appears that mountain lions and black bears at this location are actually getting food resources from the beach. And so yesterday there was a uh, a whale, a humpback whale that had washed ashore in this part of the, you know, the Pacific coast. And so it's possible that the bear could smell that whale and wanted to see if it was safe for it to get a little taste. Um, but we're finding that mountain lions are actually hunting on the coast. They're, they're pulling, you know, elephant seal pups out from where they're just, you know, kind of sleeping on the sand and actually pulling them up into the oak woodland right nearby. Mm. And this is really, really special because very few places in the world, if any, are we seeing bears and mountain lions primarily feeding on marine food resources? And so it's up to me to figure out, is this, you know, an age-old pattern? You know, have these animals been doing this in this part of California, you know, since they arrived here thousands of years ago? Or is this something that's really brand new because they've been pushed to these extremes because of, you know, so much habitat destruction elsewhere? So it's really this, I mean, I'm geeking out about it, but I think it's a fascinating ecological set of questions. Um, and I feel so honored that I am, you know, leading the way with this research. You'll be hearing more of Ray because she has her own podcast coming out later this summer, done, I think, in collaboration with uh, PBS Nature, in which she's going to be telling some of the stories some of the, she, she previewed a couple of them for us, rather hair-raising stories that she's had during her studies of large carnivores. So that's just three of the women who'll be joining Alan in the upcoming season of Science Clear and Vivid to talk about their work. There's a woman who goes to the Antarctic and Greenland to look for those ghostly particles, neutrinos, coming at us from outer space. A woman who's studying birds to see how they develop little social networks in their own cultures. A woman who's designing devices to record from and even stimulate individual neurons in the brain and spinal cord. A woman who's designing shoebox-sized satellites that can greatly improve weather forecasting as well as look for planets outside the solar system. A woman who's studying how traumatic experiences can be passed down through generations by changing in how genes are expressed. And that's just a few more of the 11 women in total who'll be joining Alan in the next season of Science Clear and Vivid. Thank you for joining us in this short preview of the coming season. And don't forget, it starts next week. And it's full of people who not only do fascinating science, they're also clear and vivid about it. See you next week. Mm -hmm.